Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today's topic is what's going on with Azure networking these days. And we've got a great guest, Pierre Roman. He's the senior cloud ops advocate at Microsoft. And he has been doing networking for, I think he said, almost 30 years or maybe more than 30 years. So the man knows his way around a packet. Uh, what stood out to you, Ethan? <laughs> Pierre does indeed know his way around a packet, man, and he's got a good sense of humor. He's thoughtful. He is not shy about saying what's on his mind either. Now, despite all that stuff that he knows, Ned, I did manage to stump him with a question he did not know the answer to. And you're going to have to wait to the end of the show to find out what that was. But uh, I don't know that I was proud of myself. It's like, oh, wow, the guy, there's something he doesn't actually know off the top of his head because he was amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely fantastic. So enjoy the conversation with Pierre Roman from Microsoft. Well, Pierre, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's get right into it. Uh, you're a fellow human, and uh, we want to know a little bit more about you. <laughs> so what would you say you do around here? What do I do around here? Well, first of all, uh, I've been in IT for a little over 30 years. Okay. Aging myself <laughs> a little. That's all right. Uh, started like with like deploying Novell. I think it was 1.7. Uh, I thought I was an old guy with Novell 311. <laughs> 1.7. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. Where you had to recompile the server kernel for every time you wanted to change the uh, the network interface card because there was no drivers. It was built into the kernel. Wow. That, that was fun. Um, so I, I've seen a lot of like the changes over the years and from back then when we've been we were actually having to do every little nitty-gritty detail of all of the networking to now just saying connect from here to here and go right. um which i which i love by the way but there's a little uh, more to it than that pierre but you know i know what there, you're saying there's actually the way i look at networking whether it's in the cloud or in uh, on-prem um it's mostly about did you think about it first? Like you, when you know what your uh, uh, network's going to look like or what you need to connect where and how, then the rest is just laying cables, whether it's their virtual cables or whether they're, they're, uh, they're physical cables. But the, the implementation is not as hard as the architecture. Mm, right, right. But when you're implementing that architecture, there's a lot of foot guns involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And sometimes, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, sometimes the tools are better at on one side than they are on the other, and uh, and sometimes the tools are basically not complete or partially there. So always have to figure it out. Yeah. Well, we wanted to have you on the show to talk about what's going on with networking in Microsoft Azure, mm -hmm. and maybe we could start with since networking is fundamentally just moving packets from point A to point B, and yep. hopefully they get there. Um, sometimes we want to inspect those packets and see what's inside them. Uh, what's going on in Azure when it comes to packet inspection? So there's a few things with packet inspection and um, a lot of people I talk to say, Oh, I'm, uh, I don't need to set up anything specific or appliances or anything like that because I've got network security group and that's when I typically go, Oh, wait, wait, wait. Because <laughs> um, if we know what the, the OSI layers are, like we, we know that we have to basically from layer three to layer seven is where we play in. And that's where we have to inspect and make sure that's like the payloads and to and from and over which protocol and what's inside is important when you're trying to really secure your environment. So I always say, first of all, NSGs are great to filter traffic, but they are not appropriate in my mind, in my own opinion, uh, for inspecting traffic. Right, because they're just a, a filter that says allow traffic from source to destination on these ports or deny that traffic. That That's it. It's just a very yeah. basic allow there, or deny list. There's five, five uh, um, parameters. Source address, source port, destination address, destination port, and allow or deny. That's right. It. So that's all the control you have. 
Okay, so if I want to do something deeper than that, if I actually want to do packet inspection and make some more intelligent decisions, what is the solution or solutions that I could do that with? Well, there, there's multiple things here. Because um, when we're talking about packing and inspection, uh, there's, do you want to do packet inspection for troubleshooting an issue or do you want to do uh, packet inspection for securing your environment? If you want to do securing your environment, then go to the uh, either an Azure firewall or any of the other firewalls that we have, like the Sophos, Palo Alto, Checkpoint, Juniper, Qualtis. Uh, there's a army of, of uh, partners out there that have virtual appliances. Uh, and I know a lot of companies uh, that I've spoken with that have been around for a long time. And one in particular I talked to not too long ago. Um, they've always been on Checkpoint. Mm -hmm. So internally, they've always been on checkpoint. That comes from before the era of the cloud. Their people know it. They trust it. They're used to it. So talking about them, they're like, okay, I don't know. Should we really go to Azure? We don't really know what it is. It won't interface with our own tools. Well, once, well, once you just deploy the checkpoint appliance. Mm. Like one of the challenges of deploying those network virtualized appliances is getting like high available ability to work properly, making sure you're filtering all your traffic. And like if you have more than one VNet, then do you have to drop two of those appliances in every VNet or can you have like a hub and spoke? So what what's the guidance on how you can effectively deploy one of those NVA pairs? Yeah, now you're getting into. Uh, <laughs> because there's. Depending on who you talk to, you're going to, if you get ask 50 people, you're going to get a hundred hour answers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because there's, there really is no bad, you know, yes, there is bad ways of doing this. Uh, but there, there is, there's varying degrees of right ways of doing that because it all depends on your capacity to pay. It all depends on your, uh, what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, it all depends on whether or not, remember earlier when we talked about uh, architecting your network uh, properly, um, are you connecting or, or are you uh, filtering all of the traffic or funneling all the traffic, sorry, uh, to a single point coming in and out of your entire network? And if so, then great, because then you put a pair there and then you're done. Load balancer in front, load balancer behind, and then you're good to go. If you're looking at the, the Azure firewall, and I'll take that one as an example, because it's not really an appliance. Most of those appliances from our partners are um, virtual machines mm -hmm. that are hardened and they've got their own sauce, special sauce on it, and they're, they're, they're deployed as a black box. So this gets deployed. You have an interface to manage it but you can't go into like the guts of that machine and change things. The Azure firewall is a cloud service, so it's not necessarily a one VM. Mm -hmm. So there is some redundancy that's already built into that. Uh, okay. In so, other words, I'm relying on Azure to provide some resilience in that service without me having to set up a dual pair. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're basically using the, the cloud service. So Azure uh, Firewall is a cloud service that already has some of that redundancy uh, reliability uh, built into it. Now, am I saying that that's one firewall can never uh, take a nosedive? It possibly could. But then again, now we go back to another kind of conversation, which is probably not... Um, focus of your your uh, our topics here today uh which is like how many nines can, do you want and how many nines can you afford yes <laughs> right. yep that's none all those the nines. none of them come for free for sure like I, i've had so many conversations with companies and when we're talking about uh high availability and in networking they're saying oh we, we absolutely want to know we want we want five nines five nine five nines and i'm like realize that five nines is less than four minutes of downtime per year unplanned downtime per year mm -hmm. and at four nines i think it's like an hour and a half roughly something uh, like that yeah so those millions of dollars you're going to pay in <laughs> to support five nines are they worth an hour and a half 
And for there are a few companies where it actually might be, but most people go, they they get that budget line item and go, oh, oh, it turns out we're more tolerant than we thought we were. Exactly. <laughs> like if you're running a nuclear silo or a hospital where people might die, then then yes, yeah, spend the money. Uh, if you're if it means that you're going to lose two orders on your uh, e-commerce sites for a grand total of $14.98 plus tax, well, maybe they can wait an hour to place their order. Right. Here, can I do uh, SSL, um, not SSL off a little bit, SSL uh, decrypt? I don't know why I just completely forgot the word, but will it break into the middle of my SSL sessions so that I can uh, in deeply inspect that traffic? Yes and no. Uh, you can tell it, you can do uh, SSL termination. That's what I mean. Thank you. Yes, termination. Yeah, you can do SSL termination or you can let it pass through. You It's yeah. configurable. Um, but if you're running a workload behind your firewall and uh, let's say like it's a web, oh, it's a web front end where uh, SSL terminates to and, and there are other solutions that we have that are more suited for that than just a straight firewall mm. so if you're looking at front door for example which has uh a, a firewall built in but it's an application level firewall it, it's, it's a WAF yeah yeah there's WAF it built into it uh it will do termination or pass through depending on what you want uh it uh, some of it is based on on DNS in terms of to how it will uh, handle the traffic. Others is based on like the internals of the the packet. So to throw my own company under the bus here. Oh boy, I'm hoping I'm not going to lose my job over this. But okay. <laughs> uh, I find that we have a ton of different services that all do almost the same. And we call them something very different. And sometimes there's a bit of confusion as to what I should get and what I should use. Do I get a, a, fabric, a traffic manager or, or a, a firewall or load balancer or internal load balancer, uh, uh, application gateway with WAF or WAF or front door or it gets to a point where you're like, which one do I pick? If only Azure was the only cloud service with that problem. <laughs> I, 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 agreed. Agreed. <laughs> At least we call our products, in most cases, uh, something that's a little bit descriptive of what it does. I've never been a big fan of our marketing. That's like it's my Windows Server 2015 Enterprise version for web. like. <laughs> Hey, the name gets this long, but at least you kind of know what it's about when you read it. Yep. Uh, right. right. It, yeah. With the number of services that already exist, it, it's really hard to keep track of all of them. And if you can at least make the name descriptive so I can go, oh, OK, I, I get what that thing's doing by like calling it Azure Firewall. Like I got a pretty good idea what yeah. that service is doing. Uh, you brought up availability a little bit earlier, and I wanted to get into that because one of the things that I noticed is availability zones Yep. have been rolling out to all the regions. I don't think all of them have them yet, but there's we, like, no, we are goal, committed. Right? We are committed to have every zone in the world, which uh, I think we're a little over 60. Now I keep, I keep track. I don't keep track of the amount because they change so often, <laughs> uh, but we're, we're around the 60 ish uh, zones worldwide. Uh, we're committed by the end of calendar 2021, every zone, every region is going to be uh have uh availability zones okay everyone's exciting um one of the big distinctions that i think i tripped over when i first tried using aws is aws subnets are by availability zone yeah. whereas in azure subnets span well there wasn't availability zones before but now that there are a subnet can span availability zones which is very okay. nice <laughs> that makes my life easier sometimes but what are is that is there a way to pin a subnet to an availability zone? Is that a thing that I would ever want to do? I'm just curious what some of the new design and architecture impacts are from having availability zones available. Now. So that one's a little fuzzy. And uh, last time when we talked and you kind of mentioned it, and I, I, I tried to get uh, one of the engineers and the product manager to uh, have a meeting with me. Uh, I am still waiting for this, uh, that meeting. 
But my view on that is it doesn't really matter to me. Okay. Because availability zones are areas or they're, they're either areas of or separate data centers. Because in some regions, like if I'm looking at, let's say, Canada East, or, or there's, there are some regions where there is a single giant data center. But that data center is actually carved into three or more separate. It's almost like three or four different separate data centers inside the same physical location. And when we say physical location, it's like three square miles of land that we've just plopped a, a pad on. Mm -hmm. So inside that one data center, you may have three availability zones because the availability zones are a logical and physical separation of network, cooling, electricity, and everything that's basically physical. Mm -hmm. There's also a logical separation uh, to ensure that, for example, storage gets replicated across availability zones, or if you're deploying a, a uh, scale set uh, uh, or a cluster, let's call it a cluster, um, across and have nodes in different availability zones. So if one zone goes down, the other two keep going. So again, not geographic separation, but system separation. You were talking about power and cooling and so on. So there's the, you can have a fire in one part of the data center. The other parts of the data center are fine. Yes. Yeah. And, and there are, we have both situation where in very large region, when we have multiple data centers, uh, then you can have like physically separated, connected by bits like super low latency between those zones to allow for replication and so on to take place. So in some regions, we do have this physical three completely separate data centers on three different pads, uh, potentially like on either side of the road or, or in mm -hmm. different end of the city. Because uh, if, you, if you can, you want to build one on different electrical grid. Yep. Unless you're in Texas when there you're screwed wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just I had to make that joke. Mm -hmm. But in some cases where we have smaller uh, data centers in regions that are just growing, uh, which for us is the case in Canada, the Canada East and Canada Central, then it becomes a physical separation, but not a geography separation. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so like there, there, there's network, electricity, cooling, uh, fire suppression, and all that good thing in three separate self-contained units. So if one goes down, it doesn't affect the other. If the commercial power goes down, three sets of generators and yeah. power banks and so on. So there, okay. that's that's the redundancy. So when we think you look at that and you say, okay, well, my, my subnet or my VNet is spending the, the, so if one goes down, it's no, it's only going to take down the workloads that are sitting in there. But if you've architected your workload properly, which is going back to the beginning of that, the, our conversation where I said, uh, the visual, no, the, the mental exercise of organizing what your workload that your network's going to support uh, is the most important part as opposed to laying the pipes. So if you've got a node in one availability zone and a node in another availability zone, we well, have yeah, node A is going to disappear because that that data center is is hopefully not in flames, but um, <laughs> something's going on with it. Something's going on with it, <laughs> right? And in some case, it is uh, physical. Like, uh, is it last year we had a, a data center where the electrical got struck by lightning? Or the cooling got struck by lightning for one section, mm. and the data center kept going, but the rest of the, the the rest of what we had couldn't support it, and it got to a point where we had to do a, a, a graceful shutdown of the data center, if not to lose everything. Mm. But if you were in an availability zone, zone two and zone three are okay. Mm -hmm. You're all right. Oh, you're good. So you, if your subnet goes across too, I I don't see and. and I'm I'm willing to you to challenge me on that. Uh, I, I don't see the big problem. Mm, okay. Yeah, it was, it was just a, you know, it was one of those things when I made the move between clouds, I was like, oh, that's different. Oh, oh but now it's available. But does that impact the architecture? And it sounds like uh, you should be taking advantage of availability zones when it comes to your workload placement. 
but it's less of a consideration when it comes to the the vnet and the the subnet distribution yeah that's okay yeah. that makes sense because in azure or basically our approach is is uh virtual network is not an end in itself it's only there to support something else mm-hmm uh, so if you architect that something else properly, then your VNet is just going to support it. Right. Getting into uh, VNets a little bit more. When I first started working on Azure, I started creating VNet peerings because that's just a natural thing that happens. Yep. And, you know, as you add more and you try to create a full mesh, you can quickly that can spin out of control. Yeah, you end up with a spaghetti plate. Exactly. <laughs> and sometimes we don't want the spaghetti plate. I mean, I like that for dinner, but maybe not for my network. Um, is there anything new that's been introduced that can help with reducing the number of peering connections uh, while still maintaining that full connectivity between VNets? Oh, network peering, in my view, is only there to avoid having to deploy VPN gateways to connect every other network that you have. I see it, and I've always seen that that cloud computing or cloud networking uh, is an extension of the physical that we've been dealing with for years. The The concepts are pretty much the same. The implementation of them uh, is different. So when you're looking at, I'd say, a physical environment, I take a company X that has offices in multiple buildings uh, or multiple cities, but they all need to access the same central HQ for the HR database or the, uh, the corporate workload that needs to happen. And you have those individual network that are supporting branch offices. And then you have to connect them somehow to that head office. That's the same when you end up in, in cloud. So you have your VNet in region A to support um, it. And I like to, personally, I like to, um, when I design or I help design uh, infrastructure to support workloads, to group everything that has the same life cycle. So the, that uh, follows the application life cycle. So if it's supporting workload A, and workload A is being turned off or because we've migrated to something else. Uh, all of that goes into the same resource group because the resource group are just uh, logical containers. And then I have my virtual network to support that workload. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I don't have a web, I don't have a virtual network to support multiple workloads because then it becomes too complicated when you try to filter. Uh, you end up with uh, going from point A to point B, having to go through a hundred different NSGs. And if your connection breaks, which one uh, is it the one at the NIC? Is it the one at the VM? Is it the one at the subnet? Is it the one on the other subnet? Is it the one like there's too many points where it can, it can affect in between. Is there a design concept where if you take a bunch of VNets that you need to talk and you don't want the spaghetti plate, you make a hub and spoke topology out of it, something like that. Yeah, that's what we have. Uh, that's what virtual WAN is. Oh, interesting. At, when I when I was first introduced to the concept of virtual WAN, it sounded like more of an SD WAN play. Where oh, I've got you know I've got these SD WAN appliances in my branch offices, and I want them all to hook into to Azure, so I'll use virtual WAN. But you're saying that's it's maybe both. that's a use case. But it's it both. could also apply to how does that work with the VNets? Then does it use the peering connection, or do you have to set up VPN gateways on every VNet? So uh, virtual WAN is basically the architecture, the hub and spoke you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what, it's, that's what its main function is. And you can connect uh, VPN devices to it. Uh, and I'm looking at my list to make sure I don't forget any private. So point to site VPN to it. So your customers, no, your customers, your, your people that are working at home now because of these, this age of the human malware, um, <laughs> and you don't have VPN concentrators everywhere. So you have, you get them to connect to the WAN, to the, to the, the, the virtual WAN. And then from there, they can connect to every other resource that is connected to that virtual WAN. So whether it's a VPN or, or other SD WAN device, so software defined um, a networking device, uh, users, uh, whether they're Azure VPN, OpenVPN, uh, anything that basically is IKV2 uh, client type, 
Uh, of course, there are some that are not supported, but we're not going to jump into that because then I will definitely <laughs> lose my job. Express route circuits or or virtual networks, either in a peered uh, or VPN gateway uh, connected capacity. So you end up with that hub and spoke as opposed yep. to have VNet A connected to VNet B and VNet B connected to VNet C and VNet C connected to B and A, and then you end up with that spaghetti. Mm-hmm. And every time you deploy a new site or virtual network or or a, a workload that has its own VF and it's, oh, I need to talk to this database was over there. So you have to connect to this. Oh, and because of the monitoring, you have to connect to this. And then, so for every one you deploy, you end up having to put like 10 more connections. And most of those connections are bi-directional. So you have to set 10 connections at 20 yeah. different endpoints. <laughs> right. <laughs> So yeah, you go you go with that hub and spoke type architecture. Is the virtual WAN limited to one region, or can you hook plumb in stuff from other regions? It's global. You it's can global. have it global. Yeah, oh, wow. It basically it basically uses the our own backbone. Okay. So the 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 private fiber that we own and have in most cases have laid down ourselves uh, to connect all of our network or or data centers worldwide. When you're looking at virtual WAN you are using that fiber and not public uh, utilities or public internet. So there's a bit more resiliency there because it's under control. We're not relying on AT&T and, and, and Bell Canada and I don't know what the rest of the Americas or Europe are using in terms of telcos, but you know what I mean? Like we're, we're, we don't have to worry about utility uh, internet connections. It's our own fiber and that's, uh, virtual WAN is on that fiber. Interesting. So if I had an express route circuit in the US yep. and uh, one uh, over in Europe, uh, I could use both of those express routes for my local offices there to hook into virtual WAN. And then I'm riding the Microsoft backbone across the the Atlantic. I don't have to you know worry about the vagaries of the internet and internet providers. Yep, Exactly. Which is not the way all the cloud providers work, Ned, as I understand it. Depends on which cloud provider. Everybody's got fiber all over the world, but not everybody wants you on that fiber all the time. They'll they'll maybe well, punch you to the internet quickly if they can. <laughs> Some of them will, will make you pay for that privilege uh, quite quite dearly. And, and you are paying for it. So virtual WAN is not a free uh, a free product. Right. Okay. So there, there is a cost associated with it. So um, there's, there's in the Azure networking, there's always a cost for egress, unless it's within a region. It, if it's not leaving the region, then it's it, like, so you're copying from server A to server B within the same region, you're good. Okay. So copying from server A to server B in a different region, then you're paying. Okay. Egress. Egress on, on server, yes. server A. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And basically, okay. everything coming in is free. Everything coming out, you pay for. Okay. Um, you brought up VPN gateways, and I think you knew this was uh, this question was coming. Um, when I yeah. go to spin up a VPN gateway, it takes like thirty minutes, and that seems like a really long time to spin up a virtual machine. So, can, can you just, if you have any insight, could you provide a little insight into what's going on? behind the covers that's taking that that long period of time. Okay, that is one of those uh, topics that I told you uh, before we started recording that I was basically told to be very careful on how I approach that particular subject. <laughs> I will say uh, mea culpa, mea culpa, uh, in terms of me as in representing Microsoft in, uh, in this particular situation. It's not the best story. Um, and it's all based on how that the automation to deploy that machine because the gateway is, that's not a cloud service. That's literally a, a virtual appliance that gets deployed where it's deploying a base OS and then over top it installs the bits that it needs. So basically it's a built-in, I don't know if I can call it that, but it's almost like a pipeline where you say deploy this, so it says, okay, well, I need that OS, and then I need on top of the OS, and I'm, I can't really get into the details as to which OS it is, because apparently um, 
There are some confusion as to whether it's a Linux backend or Windows backend. And I was not able to, because I know last time we talked, we kind of had that, oh, I thought it was this. And oh, I thought it was that. Uh, <laughs> I haven't had the up-to-date confirmation as to what we're actually running in the backend right now. Uh, but yeah, so it deploys the OS. It deploys the modules that it needs on it. It actually builds um, the rules and everything and then sets up the configuration. Yes, if you need to change one thing, it basically tears it down and restarts it. So it's always like a, a 30 to 40 minute deploying it. What I was able to ascertain is that we haven't had too many complaints from enterprise customers that are using it because this is not typically something you tear down and bring back often. When we're doing it in the lab or you're trying to set up a demo, yes, it's very annoying. Like you're right, your 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 CI/CD pipeline or whatever your your ARM template or your PowerShell or or a CLI script to say I'm going to deploy in this environment for my development team to be able to use, and then it stalls on that 30 minutes of building the gateway. Right. That that's exactly the scenario that I was running into is because I do a lot of demos. <laughs> like if that's one of the things I have to deploy, I'm like, all right, well, I can't do that demo live. I, that that has to be. I either have to have a warmed up environment or pre recorded, just because I know that that's going to take longer. But you're right in in a in a regular environment, you would build that once, and then you wouldn't really do much with it except create connections. To in a regular it. environment, Ned, you could just go get a cup of coffee and relax because you need to relax, buddy. But I'm special. I, <laughs> I want <Hey>. it now. <laughs> special how? Like it's like my wife keeps telling me I'm funny, and I keep asking her, "Am I funny, strange, or funny, haha?" Mm -hmm. Does she say yes? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> oh, I've had a similar conversation. Oh dear. Another thing that we we talked about previously was connecting a VPN gateway in Microsoft Azure to a VPN gateway in AWS, because what I've encountered is there's this first mover problem where each of them wants the other one to initiate the connection. And so neither of them ever does. And you said you might have gotten that working. Can you I got I got it working. That? I got it working. And I'll send you the link to the article I wrote. And that was in early 2019. So things might have changed since. Uh, well, I've done it a few years ago uh, using a Windows Server 2012 R2 with RRAS mm -hmm. um, as an edge device in my virtual network to connect to the uh, AWS um, appliance and establish connection that way. In early 2019, I got it to work. Um, the problems that they have is, as you mentioned, is like the, is like, uh, first responder uh, syndrome, meaning Azure can either respond or initiate the call or the connection. Mm -hmm. AWS can only respond to it. Okay. So, so you gotta let the Azure side know you got to make the call first. <laughs> so Azure always has to initiate the connection. Okay. So for some reason, if AWS side thinks it's not connected, but the Azure side still shows as connected. It's not going to try to reconnect it. Because as mm. far as it knows, it's already connected. And the AWS side is not going to say, hey, I'm, I'm down or the connection is down for some reason. Uh, and it's not going to try to reinitiate it. So it's just going to sit there. And it's, I've seen this uh, in production where you look at one side and it says connected. You look at the other side and it's not connected. They're not quite uh, there. It, it's one of those things where they're, we're all using standards. Right. <laughs> with massive air <laughs> quotes. Uh, but we're implementing them in kind of like uh, our own little special sauce on top side sometimes. Right. Um, the other thing is we use IKV1 for policy based and IKV2 for uh, route based. So when you're looking at the VPN, uh, there's two two different types of VPN connections. You have route base and policy base, and uh, AWS only supports IKV one. Okay. Hmm. Or that's the last time I looked. So they, that things might have changed. I haven't I haven't had the, uh, a lot of time uh, in the last few months uh, to actually revisit. But now that you mention it, maybe I should uh, try to reset, redo my work to see if it works again. 
<laughs> yeah, I was also I I noticed the same thing about V1 being the only one supported by the, the AWS side. And I always thought that was a little strange, but like that's, yeah, that's you, the choice they made. So you think yeah. you think V2 would be supported just for the efficiency of it? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and there's also a mismatch in the uh, phase uh, lifetime. So phase two lifetime, for example, uh, it's 3,600 millisecond for policy-based and 27. And I'm reading my notes here because I, I know typically I, I foobar the numbers and then somebody says, ah, oh, that number was wrong. Anyway, uh, 2,700, uh, 27,000 seconds for root base. AWS only has one setting for 3,600. So when the settings are off, then well, the, the, the handshake gets a little wonky and then sometimes it connects and sometimes it doesn't. In theory, that shouldn't stop the tunnel from coming up because I think the way the standards read for IPsec, you should pick the the lower, whichever one is, um, you know, tightens the scope. I think that's the way that's supposed to happen. But as you say, standards, <laughs> air quotes, standards. you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, so it does, it's getting better. Um, it becomes now, how do you, like what the use case is, it's getting to the point where what's the use case of connecting those two. Right. Um, and you, all, you always have the option to de deploy a virtual appliance or a virtual machine like you did to, to get the connectivity going. If, if you find it's too onerous to do it the other way, I just, I, I thought it was neat that you actually got working because I struggled with that. The, the use case is, is IPsec, air quotes, standards. Um, it's there. We should be able to do this right. Why do I have to drop a virtual appliance into uh, both of my environments and pay for the cost of those and, and so on? If you're not already invested in SD-WAN, let's say, and you don't want to do yeah. that or you don't want to get into a uh, cloud as a service uh, vendor, that kind of a relationship, then I should just be able to nail up a tunnel. I can do that, right? Um, you know, yeah, maybe not, right? <laughs> or, or everybody that says, why Why don't you just use something open source? Like everybody supports open VPN. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> still got to set up an appliance though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, it, but if you're a native appliance supports it or is based on open vpn for example and aws is also support or based on open vpn then there shouldn't be a problem with both of them connecting shouldn't be a problem right assuming it's the same version and you've got the same control over configuration settings yeah oh it's always a mess um the other thing that i wanted to talk to you about um is ipv6 because I think we've all noticed that the public address space for IPv4 is starting to look a little sparse. The last Azure's block was was uh, allocated, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in March 2018. At least for the United States. Yeah. Or they've no, no, distributed no. out to all the different providers, but they haven't allocated them all to... The providers private. have not allocated them, but the international body that manages that has actually allocated its last block of IP to... The service providers so there are no more to be dulled around once the service <laughs> providers run out right so ipv6 is looking a little uh, a little attractive like maybe that's something we should move towards uh what can i do with ipv6 in azure today okay this is a good story and a not so good story the good story is ipv6 is a foundational did i pronounce that properly a foundational I, I, <laughs> I, I'm I'm French, okay. So uh, I put the emphasis on the ring syllable all the time. Well, it's ah, yes. fundamental and foundational. So I guess it depends which one you want. Actually, it's both. <laughs> uh, there we go. <laughs> because the original Azure Fabric was built with IPv6, which isn't surprising to me, just knowing Microsoft's history with IPv6. There, yep. in fact, if you're a Packet Pushers podcast network listener. Go to IPv6 Buzz. There was a whole interview with Microsoft internal on how they did v6 and as it rolled out over the last couple of decades. Microsoft's been a, a leader in v6 implementation. So yeah, so it's part of the fabric. It's always been there. That's the good story. Okay. The bad story is it hasn't been implemented in every service that's sitting on top of the of the fabric. And the tools where you can use it, the tools are like you can't. In the portal, you can't go into the portal and say, oh, for these virtual, for that virtual network, I want to add an IPv6 uh, uh, range, address space. I want to use this okay. address space for this virtual network. And then 
tell the Knicks, oh, uh, you now have an IPv6 stack, uh, get it from that range. You can't do it in the portal. You okay. do it in PowerShell, you can do it with ARM templates, <laughs> you can do it with Azure CLI, and then it will show up in the portal, but there's no way of doing it in the portal, which mm. for a lot of people is where they start when they're learning the technology. Sure. Very few actually kind of say, oh, I want to learn all about Azure, but I'm never going to look at the portal. I'm just going to dive into PowerShell, Azure CLI, and REST APIs, and is because like stabbing me in the eye with a needle. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just being uh, facetious here because I this is the way I learn. I do it once in the portal so I can understand how things fit together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I go, oh, all right. So if I have to do this again, so I know the order which things need to happen now. I've seen it happen. I see it running. I have a, a reference architecture I can go to when when I write my either PowerShell uh, CLI or uh, ARM template or BICEP now. And then I and then I figure out how to automate it so I, I don't have to sit in front of and, and click 50 times uh, on on some progress bars and, and radio buttons and checkbox. Right. And I think it's the way most people learn. That's certainly the way that I go about it whenever I'm deploying a new thing is do it in the portal first so I can see the architecture. And like you said, you can also get it to render an ARM template for you so you can kind of see what the underlying values are it uses and then go and script it out using your tool of choice. Except that I find that the export function of any resource in ARM, I think we have some work to do on that. It puts up a lot of stuff that you basically end up having to massage for lack of a better word it's an overabundance (laughs) of detail and specificity and you need to carve that stuff out and just take okay these are the actual settings i need to put in and azure will figure out the rest exactly makes sense so ipv6 i'm assuming it's a it's supported inside of vnet yes um and then there's some of the other services that support IPv6. Yep. So is, are, are all the core ones supported, like Azure VMs, storage, maybe some of the database services? Don't quote me on that, but I believe storage, Azure SQL, uh, VNets, VMs, and there's a couple others that I know for sure uh, that uh, that are like fully implemented and you can use them now, except, like I said, you need to use like, PowerShell CLI or ARM template right. to, to enable it. Uh, and, but considering we are getting to that point where we, three years ago, we said, get off IPv4, get off IPv4. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. <laughs> and then nobody did. And the sky didn't fall. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of things going on there. Part of it's gray market IPv4 where people have thought of, I have way more than I need. And it turns out they're super valuable. I'd like to sell them. So that that's a thing that's going on. <laughs> uh, if I have my own IPv6 though, that's been allocated to me, provider independent address space, it's, it's quote unquote, my uh, V6. Can I bring that to my Azure environment? Oh, that's a very good question. And that's a question I do not have an answer to. So if you don't mind, I'm going to write that down. I think in some environments you can, and in some you can't. You're just going to get it. They're going to carve you off. The, the cloud provider is going to carve off V6 for you because they got tons of it, and it's not a big yeah. deal. But still, there are those shops that are going to want to maintain their own if they can. I saw not too long ago, actually, a uh, an analogy of IPv6 where, uh, for, for example, uh, in Azure Virtual Network, when you allocate an address space, it's always a slash 64. Mm-hmm. And a slash 64 has enough addresses and the calculation were so that every person on earth would have like a billion devices that they could each address individually. Yep. Without running out. Yeah. I don't know what the ratio is. It is something insane like that, but it, 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 Network engineers get hung up on that, where it's like, I don't want to assign a slash 64. It seems like such a waste of addresses. Yeah, but you got so much to play with. It doesn't matter. Think about subnetting, keeping it, keeping yourself sane as you're trying to manage your address plan, et cetera. Even if that means putting a slash 64 on a point to point link between routers and people really get hung up on that one. Uh, but that <laughs> yeah. that is best current practice as I understand it. Slash 64 on links is fine yeah yeah it's and it's we're far away from the days where i had to like calculate va- uh, calculate variable uh, subnet masks so that i could like the heartbeat in between uh, network clusters yeah 
mm-hmm. so that if I, I knew if I had five uh, uh, nodes in my cluster that I yeah. would have a subnet that had no more, let's say, than like 12 addresses because I don't want anybody else to connect to that. So I want to control like gone are those days. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure Thankfully. that was on the CCNA or something. <laughs> you have this number of devices on the network and how many, what size subnet uh, mask would you use? And, and you had to like calculate it in your head. And I'm so glad I don't. That's why they invented subnet calculators online. Yeah. No, no and, and it gets even worse when you say you have multiple subnets that each have the blah, 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 blah. And you want to have like, what's the, what's the supernet uh, uh, address and the variable subnet mask you're going to use so that it's the same address space, but, <laughs> just convert it to binary it's easy come on you guys convert to binary get out you, you get out <laughs> that's what i used to do i would sit convert the octets from decimal to binary do the math that way then i couldn't get it wrong oh well. yeah, what well, button do yeah. i use to mute him <laughs> <laughs> oh he's the host there's nothing we can do oh god oh. okay no yeah but you're right uh it's it's different. And, and so the IPv6, the, the good part of the story is it's built into the foundation. Uh, it's available to a lot of services, but not all the services. And it's slowly coming. It's slowly being kind of like revived. Uh, one of the, in the original version of what I think it was called Red Dog, the internal project name of Azure. Okay. Uh, it might have been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which at the time was only PaaS, no IaaS, so virtual network was not a thing. So it really didn't care because you didn't get to pick your network. You were mm-hmm. just running a PaaS service. And mm-hmm. the, the network was completely ups- obfuscated for you. But once we started in the IaaS environment and people started setting up their own virtual network and connecting with on-prem and, and doing this thing, and considering that everything that's internal is all private IP addresses from like class B's and class C's of private, and you can never run out of private because you put a class B in your subnet in your virtual network. And it like, you've got metric ton of, uh, I'm looking to see if, Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to this, Pierre just bleeped himself. We didn't even have to do that in the edit. That was impressive. <laughs> But you have enough addresses to do everything. And then you really have to be conscious of what you're allowing out and what you're allowing in. And for that, we have pools of addresses that you can use. So IPv4, it hasn't, IPv6, sorry, is hasn't been this burning demand from our customers because we're at the point where IPv4 is still doing the job and doing it well. Right. It's going to become now a problem because of all of these IoT devices that yeah. are uh, IPv6 based. And like now there's a what's the word I'm looking for? There's like we're almost at that tipping point where, oh, now we, we have to get this done now because there is a there's a pent up demand because mm-hmm. really Azure is a business. So we're not going to yeah. put. If we have to choose whether we put your engineering resources to setting up the GUI for IPv6 or building a next service that's, that is in demand. I see uh, it as a global market problem, Pierre, where it, it's not as much that IPv4 can or can't do the job as there are some markets that are emerging that will only be I, IPv6. And so if you want to connect to those, then yep. you need to offer your services on v6. So, yeah. And currently, uh, so if you're in Microsoft, if you're building a new infrastructure or even an old infrastructure, because you can add that in uh, without any problems, is running a dual stack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And virtual network and IaaS is completely capable of doing that. So all your VMs, the, the thing I would say too is uh, IPv6, there's no such thing as private IPv6 or public IPv6. Right. It's, I, it's IPv6. So when you start allocating IPv6 addresses to your machines, now you have to think that you don't have that little question mark when you were deploying that machine originally where you'd say, do you want to allow this a public IP address for this machine? And you go, ooh, no, I don't, because this is going to be internal. Now they're all IPv6, or they're all going to have IPv6, which means they're all internal and external. Right. So now how do you stop? How do you do this? 
So there's now now we get back into the firewall and we get back yes. into the load balancing discussions where you segregate all traffic through a controlled endpoint. Yeah, if every device has a globally routable IPv6 address, then right, your firewall policies become quite crucial. Exactly. And you're routing so that everything goes out, not to the default router, but to the, de the default appliance uh, that's going out. All right. Well, this has been a, a far reaching and very invigorating conversation, Pierre. If folks want to know more about you or they want some follow up uh, tips for getting into some of the topics we talked about, uh, where should they go? Where should they look? Okay, uh, number one, uh, docs.com or docs at microsoft.com uh, microsoft is basically where all of our documentation is. Uh, so if you go in there, there's a section for networking and in it's everything I've talked about, uh, there's an article for. If you have problems finding it, uh, you can reach me uh, at Wired Canuck, which is my Twitter address. Uh, we also have a Discord server that's set up for community that's completely open with a permanent invite, uh, aka.ms slash talk in one word, dash Discord. I'll send you the address for that too. You can put it in the description. Um, we have our blog on itopstalks.com and our YouTube video on youtube.com slash talk. Uh, you can leave comments. You can uh, connect with us and uh through all of these and uh i can help you and point you in the right direction my dms are open awesome thank you so much pierre roman for joining us today on day two cloud and hey listener out there virtual high fives to you for tuning in if you've got suggestions for future shows, we'd love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow, or you can fill out the form on my fancy website, NedInTheCloud.com. Did you know that Packet Pushers has a weekly newsletter? It's called Human Infrastructure Magazine. You're the human. And it is loaded with the best stuff that we found on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It is free, and it doesn't suck. So that's good. You can get the next issue via packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs> <laughs>